Hello there, you're listening to episode 2 of Miradas, the podcast bringing you new perspectives on current affairs and culture in Latin America. I'm your co-host Laurie Blair, and this week is a very special episode in honour of the Women's World Cup, that is in football or soccer if you like, which ended dramatically a few days ago with the US beating the Netherlands 2-0 and securing their fourth title something the US men's team is yet to do a single time. And as befits the show, we're focusing on women's football in Latin America in particular. Now, it's a podcast of three halves, as ever. Kicking off in the news flash, my co-host John Bartlett spoke with Natalie Jedra, Brazilian sports journalist who's been covering the tournament out in France. Taking us into half-time in the deep dive section, I then caught up with historian Brenda Elsie of Hofstra University and talk about her... A new co-authored book, Footballera, A History of Women and Sports in Latin America. And then bringing us into extra time in our section dedicated to culture, John had a chat with the Colombian forward and Olympian Melissa Ortiz, who spoke very candidly about the successes of and obstacles to women's football in the region. So there's three uh, really interesting, critical and uh, I think inspiring guests this week and you'll be hearing from John for some post-match analysis at the end. Enjoy! With me this morning is Natalie Jedra, a Brazilian sports journalist from Sao Paulo who's worked for Global in Brazil among many other outlets and is now working in London for ESPN covering the Premier League. She was out in France covering the 2019 Women's World Cup and joins us now from Portugal. So Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Hi John, thank you for having me at Miradas. Uh, so firstly, we'd like to start with talking about the, uh, the World Cup itself. How was it to report from France on this kind of showpiece event for women's football? Oh, it was special because uh, we felt it there that this was a special edition of the Women's World Cup. So it wasn't just about the biggest teams, the biggest women's football teams in the world. There was so much more uh, being discussed there. So it was special to see and to talk to fans and see how how much they realized that, how involved they were, not only with their matches itself, but with the whole speech, the whole speech that was surrounding this World Cup about equal pay, about uh, the role of women in football and in society. So it was definitely a, a special World Cup, and it was really nice to, to leave that. Uh, in person and have this uh, contact with uh, the players and with with the fans who were who were there in France. Yeah, it sounds like it, it's uh, it went really well, kind of overall the way it was staged and things. Um, how did you find the access, kind of speaking to kind of the players and things? Is it more of a kind of is there more of a personal connection with players during during this tournament than you've seen in the past? Actually, um, covering women's World Cup is different. It's, it's much different than, than covering men's football. Uh, when you cover women's football, they are much more approachable. They are much more accessible. So uh, I remember the other uh, times that I, that I covered women's uh, women's football. It was always like that. They're very friendly and they're very open to you. They, they uh, end an interview and they start chatting with you if they uh, if they meet you somewhere uh, on the street or in the hotel. They are very friendly, very nice. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a different atmosphere because they they understand that the exposure is really good for them. Yeah. So they are very much open with the press. It, it's very nice. I I really like it. 
Yeah, yeah, it sounds well. Yeah, like I say, it sounds like it's a it's been a, a good World Cup to report on. Um, if we kind of talk now about the Latin American teams that uh, that were there, the the top four ranked Latin American teams according to the FIFA rankings are Argentina, Chile, or Brazil first, and uh, Argentina and Chile. Colombia are second, and they weren't at this World Cup. Um, Argentina and Chile went out in the group stages, and Brazil scraped through as well. How did the Latin American teams do compared to kind of the expectations that we that we might have for them and then the resources that are available to each of them? I think they were all above expectations, actually, because um, I'm going to start with Chile. Chile uh, probably didn't play uh, their best World Cup, but everybody was talking about Christian Endler, mm-hmm. about their goalkeeper. Uh, she did amazing. Uh, in this first stage. Uh, of course, she has already international experience. She's a Paris Saint-Germain player. She played, mm-hmm. uh, she's been playing in in Europe. She's play, she played in Valencia, uh, Everton, Chelsea. So uh, she has yeah. international experience, but everybody was really amazed uh, with her. And it was a really nice moment to see a South American goalkeeper, a South American player, but a South American goalkeeper do so well uh, in a match that was so important. Mm-hmm. And then Argentina, I covered the, their last group stage uh, match against Scotland. Mm-hmm. And that was an amazing experience. As a journalist, as a football fan, it was really, it was incredible because after the match, uh, we stayed uh, with the fans next to the bus. And there were, I think, like 50, 60 fans waiting for the, the Argentinians to come out uh, just to cheer for them, just to show their, their support, although it, it was very unlikely that at that point they would get the the spot in the last 16. Yeah. Um, they just stayed there and it was raining, it was pouring rain and they were all <laughs> chanting all the time and the players were very much surprised with that. So it was a very nice moment because they, they came out of the locker room and they went to the bus and they, they took some pictures and everything and, and then the fans kept chanting and they got off the bus and they um, started chanting with the fans and they were very emotional. So uh, that was very nice because everybody recognizes the the sacrifice that the Argentinians uh, did uh, playing uh, playing football uh, in the country. The 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 team almost. Uh, for, they didn't play for two years, and they managed to qualify um, through Copa America for the Women's World Cup. And then things just—they trained basically for one year and a half. Yeah. And they are a mix of uh, amateurs and professional players. So it's a very touching story. It's a very nice story. And, and the Argentinians—they are very passionate people, and uh, they really recognize that. And uh, regarding Brazil. Um, the Brazilian team came from uh, a sequence of nine straight losses. So everybody was very, uh, nobody was optimistic uh, with the Brazilian team. Mm-hmm. But uh, the thing about the Brazilian team, um, and I've been following them for, for years now, but uh, the, the girls, when they, when they decide that they need to, to, to make it happen, it's, it's all about will and talent, you know, they're very determined and uh, that was that was it for this World Cup for for the Brazilians. They, they showed their talent, although uh, they had uh, so many difficulties, uh, like most women's teams, but uh, with, uh, uh, with, with technical problems as well, because people mostly don't like the manager, Vadão. Uh, he's outdated, 
he's an outdated um, manager, but it's not all, all on him. There are lots of uh, things that needs to be um, to be fixed in the structure of the the Brazilian football team. But they the way that they played uh, against Italy and against France was amazing. What was really outstanding was so much better than everybody thought. And uh, so so yeah, it, it went beyond the expectations, and they were actually greeted uh, in the airport back in Brazil. For, um, from hundreds of fans, which and that never happens. Yeah. So people really recognize their their strength and their will, and they were very much involved with this World Cup, the Brazilians. Yeah, it's great to see such support back home, isn't it? Um, I think that yeah. it's it's interesting to see as well because you, you mentioned Christiane Endler, the the Chilean uh, Chilean goalkeeper. She's I mean, her kind of her profile has risen astronomically throughout this tournament. You know, there have been these kind of compilations all over the place of her saves and things throughout the World Cup. But like yeah. you say, I mean, it's it's interesting to to it's interesting to hear more about her background because she's obviously, you know, she's kind of played in Europe. She's played for some big teams. She's now at Paris Saint Germain, and she was already a, a well-established player. But she's obviously kind of risen to the next level at this kind of global. Uh, recognition now do you think we've seen yeah. any any other kind of players I mean she could be one but are there any other players that could kind of lead the next generation uh, of women's footballers in Latin America kind of into this into this new era uh, I think I can I can speak more about the Brazilians and mm-hmm. yes there are uh, I think uh, we have to mention Andresa Alves because she uh, it was just such a shame that she got injured she picked up an injury during uh, the World Cup, but she is extremely talented. She's 26 year old. She she was playing for Barcelona. Now she mm-hmm. she announced that she's not playing for Barcelona anymore. Nobody knows where she's going, but she's very talented player. Uh, definitely want to to have a look on. Everybody was talking about Dabinha, and I was very happy about it because uh, Dabinha is not exactly the youngest of this generation because mm-hmm. she's 27 years old. So she's been with the national team for a while, but I think in this World Cup, she improved in certain aspects. Uh, she improved some mistakes that she, she was doing, uh, she was she kept doing. So so she, she managed to learn with from her mistakes during the tournament. Mm-hmm. And that was really nice to see, like that being and how much she matured in, in the past few years. So we definitely have to talk about her. And uh, Pamir is left back. Uh, she had a hard time <laughs> against France, mm-hmm. but uh, she did uh, an amazing tournament and everybody was talking about her. And it's so nice because um, the Brazilians are always talking about, of course, Marta, Cristiani, uh, the, the Formiga, and they are older players. Everybody um, got used to these names, but it's nice to see people talking about the Binha, talking about a left back, mm-hmm. not a, a forward, you know? So, so I think that's, uh, these are some names that we we can uh, keep an eye on for for the for the pet for the next two years. Yeah, the future does seem to be to be bright, certainly. And one of the other things that's uh, apparent about the three Latin American sides that were were at this World Cup, they're all coached by men. I mean, there's mm-hmm. you know that's the case for a lot of teams, a lot of women's teams around the world. I mean, England obviously coached by Phil Neville is a kind of high profile appointment. Do you think that there are kind of the channels for, for women to get involved in the non-playing aspects of the game? Because, I mean, like yourself, I mean, I know you went into sports journalism and you, you, you do a lot of uh, writing, particularly about men's football in the Premier League. But are there these kind of, you know, coaching media roles? Are they available to women as well? I mean, you know, is there enough access? Uh, 
In the media, I think there is. Mm -hmm. Definitely uh, in the past. I've been a sports journalist for 10 years and I've definitely seen uh, an improvement in this sense. Mm -hmm. And in football, um, I think, well, in the Argentinian case, for example, uh, the manager was the same one uh, that managed Argentina the last time that they played the World Cup. So he is very much involved with the with the women's team and with the structure and he's very much aware of all the difficulties that these girls face and uh but there is a there, there's kind of a wall that, that that people just uh that that women uh don't seem to to be able to break through for lack of opportunities brazil had a female manager mm-hmm. um well, I think two years before the the World Cup, I think even less. Emily Lima, mm-hmm. uh, she's very much involved with uh, women's team. She's very respected for most um, for most players. Uh, she has a lot of experience. She manages Santos today, which is one of the main teams in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she she had some difficulties. She had some arguments with the with the Brazilian FA. So she got sacked, uh, not only for bad results, but especially for that. And, um, and, and Vadão is a name that is better known for, from everyone at the FA. So mm-hmm. uh, I think there is, there is something, uh, people looks, uh, look uh, in a more suspicious way uh, when you talk about women uh, managing uh, football teams. But I know that there are ex-players who are, uh, being prepared and who are studying and who are uh, aspiring this type of roles. And uh, Hosanna, for example, uh, is one of the main players in the Brazilian uh, team, in the history of the Brazilian team. Uh, she's a legend and she retired already and she's been studying and she wants to, to manage for sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, uh, mm-hmm. that the, these teams and, and Latin America in general... They can look uh, to this World Cup with so many female uh, managers, especially in Europe, and and take some inspiration from it. And because it is a sexist uh, environment, mm-hmm. and they they are very suspicious with women taking a, taking up uh, roles like that. Yeah, it is noticeable. Um, and then finally, I suppose we're kind of you know we're rightly rightly talking about the quality of the tournament and the you know the. The way it's kind of immeasurably improved the standing of the game and the kind of consciousness of uh, of all these players, and it's it's been a fantastic tournament all round. But I mean, the the fact remains that a lot of the players, or I, I think in in kind of certain teams more than more than kind of a, as a general point, a lot of the players have sacrificed a huge amount just just to get to these tournaments. I mean, there isn't there isn't the kind of support for women. We're going to talk to Melissa Ortiz later, who's uh, stepped away from the Colombian team. Um, there just isn't the support for a lot of these people to get to the tournaments. Do you think we have kind of moved on to a stage where, come the next World Cup, we're not going to hear all these stories about about women kind of paying their own expenses to to train, to get to training camps, all of these things? And are we kind of papering over the cracks to some extent with such a wonderful kind of tournament and such a great spectacle? I think we're definitely making progress, and that that makes me very happy. And you can see the optimism. Uh, among the players because this World Cup was characterized by so many teams, so different, so many different teams from different parts of the world just uh, really engaged with uh, women's rights in football and uh, payments and uh, 
just just being acknowledged, just uh, having more uh, more space in television, in the media, and just mm-hmm. people paying more attention and paying more respect for women's football. Mm-hmm. And that definitely happened in South America uh, for these three teams, for Chile, for Argentina, and for Brazil. Uh, for Argentina, it was the first time that they picked up a point. They picked up two points, actually, in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, it seems like something small, but if you take... Uh, if you put it into context and everything that they, they faced in these past few years with the team uh, non-existing for for almost two years, uh, it's remarkable. It's amazing what they, they have done. And and uh, when I interviewed the Argentinians, they were very uh, happy about uh, the progress that they can have after this World Cup. Mm-hmm. And for uh, talking about Brazil, definitely... Uh, Global uh, broadcasted the tournament for the first time in history. Mm-hmm. Global is the main TV uh, in Brazil. They are huge. And everybody was talking about the World Cup in Brazil. And everybody was talking about girls, even though Copa America was happening pretty much at the same time. Yeah. So that was a huge step. People were very involved with women's football. Uh, and I see this uh, continuing, especially now with FIFA regulation that uh, the big clubs ha- need to have uh, women's teams and the, the leagues, the local leagues are, are getting more organized. And I think uh, teams like Brazil, like Argentina, like Chile, they noticed uh, that uh, like Spain, Italy, countries that are investing in the local league are having results. They are showing that it is important to invest in the local leagues and that reflects on the national team. So so I think that we will have stronger local leagues uh, step by step, mm-hmm. but that this World Cup was important. Yes, I don't know how, how much of a, uh, of a big of a step is going to be, but it, it's definitely going to improve. I'm, I'm very optimistic about that. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of optimism uh, around the game at the moment. And it's great to see, like you say, um, such a big stride being made in such a short period of time. So, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, great to speak to you. It was a pleasure, John. Thank you. Okay, so I'm joined via Skype by Dr. Brenda Elsie, a historian at Hofstra University, co-host of the feminist sports podcast Burn It All Down, and co-author with Joshua Nadell of Footballera, a history of women and sports in Latin America. Uh, It came out this May, and it does what it says on the tin uh, very well. Uh, Brenda, thanks for joining us. Can you tell me a bit about the kind of archival materials, uh, the sources, Uh, and the process you sort of used to to write this book. So Josh and I had both written our first books predominantly on men's football, Mm -hmm. you know, with with a big focus on gender history. So there was definitely some social history of women that we had started to do. And both of us were fairly dissatisfied with, uh, with our own treatment of women's history in sport. And so when we went to go, um, researched the book, we had a few different things. For the physical education stuff, we looked at journals, you know, whether they're national journals of physical education, Mm -hmm. um, to kind of get a sense of what the ideological trends were in Latin America, what kinds of curriculum they were shaping, who was responsible for it, what were the politics of that. When it came to a lot of the social history, we got very, very lucky. So 
a few years ago, probably five years ago, I went to Sao Paulo and I went to the Museo de Futebol, which is the football museum. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to go, you know, and see what they had in their library. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the director of the museum, uh, Daniela Alfonsi, was launching a an exhibition on on women's football Mm -hmm. and we went i went and talked to the archivist and she said i have about four thousand documents and no one wants them (laughs) (laughs) i was over the moon i mean i can't even tell you and so in the book, right off the bat, we go through that process and how grateful we were and how lucky we were because it really is a needle in a haystack situation. And they had newspapers and magazines and personal archives of players. And uh, we couldn't even, I mean, you could write five books from what they had. And since then, they've gone through and sort of kept that archive going. But that was absolutely essential. Wow. And then for the parts in on Mexico and Central America, Josh had won a grant to use the University of Texas Library, which is just so fantastic. And again, um, we relied a lot on media, a lot on newspapers and magazines and things like that. So there's no like archive of sport that really exists, but mm. we were able to, to get a lot more than we initially thought. That's really fascinating. I mean, that seems to be the kind of that's the historian historian's dream, right? Coming across this this sort of huge cache of materials. Absolutely, uh, it was, and it was very fortuitous the timing and everything. So we were really grateful. Well, and of course, you know, uh, you know, a large part of the work is is how you've you've stitched those together, and and you know, obviously, you have a kind of a, a wide regional um, focus. And I, I kind of wondered if you could talk to me a bit about about, about the kind of historical differences. Um, between countries in terms of how that relationship between women and, and, and sport is seen. You know, you, you write about, for example, how women's football was was banned in, in Brazil from 1941 through to 1979, um, whereas perhaps like Mexico, that, that, that's viewed in a slightly more um, benign way. I mean, you know, what are those kind of regional, some of those regional differences and, and, and why do you think um, they, they manifested themselves? So Mexico is a really particular case just because of the state and the ways in which the state had the educational missions, you know, in the post-revolutionary Mexico, Mm. the educational missions that were sort of far flung and went into rural areas and had a real modernist sort of view on physical education. So um, soccer, for example, comes comes much later to to Mexican women and curriculum than in other places and that's true of men's football as well in mexico so there's a lot of reasons for that Mm -hmm. um but but we found that the schools the state was was a far bigger presence in trying to promote women's um sport but not exactly football right Mm -hmm. um so that that changes we look at volleyball um which is a really big deal in mexico and a lot of the women have uh, a sort of trajectory where they're touring around the southwestern part of the United States. So they have a kind of capacity to travel in ways that Brazilian women don't. And so the very sort of popularity 
of volleyball and basketball among women in the U.S., and Mexican-American women in the U.S. also provides Mexican women with, you know, with with teams to play, with invitations and things like that. Mm. Um, of course, there's still quite a lot of informal obstacles to women's participation that happen. Um, in Brazil, the landscape is much different. The more that um, football is linked to national identity in Brazil, and the more it's linked to developing proper masculinity, the further they push women away from it. Mm. Okay. And, um, and it's interesting because people will often bring up the, the English ban on, on women's soccer as a sort of parallel. Mm. And the difference is that it's not a ban that's put in place by the FA. It's put in place by the, the government of Getulio Vargas. Mm. And it has to do with trying to promote sort of ideal motherhood and um, certainly it's, it's pretty forthright in trying to push women out of public space, send the message that they really don't have the right to leisure time, you know, all, all of those sorts of things. That, that's really interesting because you have a kind of intersection between nationalism, um, theories of gender, um, you know, and, and physical activity going going on there. Um, I, I kind of, I, I sort of wonder, you know, obviously that you you have this this focus on on these large kind of countries with a very um, storied sporting tradition: Brazil, Mexico, Chile. Are, are there any kind of case studies uh, and examples? You, you you came across in researching football arrests, which kind of were surprising or, or slightly unusual, or perhaps didn't 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 you know didn't fit what what you had sort of you know um, uh, you know what you'd initially imagined. Yeah, I mean the the most glaring example of that is Costa Rica. Hmm. So there's a group um, of of women soccer players, football players in Costa Rica that start around the late 1940s. And there's a team um, which becomes, you know, sort of Deportivo Femenino, which becomes very popular and becomes sort of like the apostles of women's soccer. They go to Panama, they go to Colombia, they go to Mexico. Mm. And basically, it's just this this family, this Bonilla family. And the brothers, there's two brothers, and their family we, we also interviewed and, and, and got a lot of photographs and information from them. And the brothers just, for whatever reason, think it's a cool idea to start a women's soccer team. And they play their sisters and the people in the neighborhood, and they act as team managers and coaches. And it becomes incredibly popular. And at the time, the Costa Rican Congress in 1950-51 debate a ban on women's soccer as it gets popular. And, um, and they decide not to, to implement that ban. Mm. And it's interesting because it's the very same sort of rhetoric and discourse about protecting women from themselves, making sure that their um, maternal health is in order, all of the same sort of pseudoscientific arguments that are going on in Brazil, Chile, Argentina, and yet um, they decide not to do that. And it's not, it's not really clear what makes Costa Rica different. I mean, we, we tried to sort of delve into that and, and put out some ideas. But in the end, it's, it, there is a degree of just human agency. Mm. That's really fascinating. So you have, you know, the actions of this, of this one family actually kind of changing the, the fate of, of, of the national game. And even transnationally, because sure. they really do travel. 
And uh, it becomes really this exciting moment for the women who are involved because uh, it's it's really radical for young single women to, you know, they dress up in suits. You, you know, there's photographs of them in front of their airplane. Mm-hmm. And this is really working in middle class single women. And it's 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 very fascinating to just see how excited they are and where football takes them. Touched on the relationship between nationalism and 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 football, and you and you you write that as football became increasingly part of national identities in the region, women faced greater exclusion. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that relationship between nationalism and sport, and 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 also I wondered whether to what extent uh, the kind of transnational global political context in the in the twentieth century kind of you know impacts on on the development of of women's participation in sport you know does the kind of cultural cold war context have have an impact on 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 the, the sort of topics you're you're looking at you know um it it does and it doesn't to a certain extent um i we looked at the pan american games of 1951 in Argentina, which were really important uh, as outlets for women's sport. And that is a particularly interesting point because Perón is looking in that period to try to provide this sort of third way, mm. you know, kind of kind of neither nor Soviet and U.S., but his own sort of um, vision, justilismo, you know, <laughs> vision of, sure. of what... Of, of what of what Latin America could do independently. So in, in 1951, Eva Perón plays a really important role in mobilizing Argentine women's sport um, around the Pan American Games. And a lot of, it's not clear why the Pan American Games ever adopt so many women's sports. Mm-hmm. It starts from the Caribbean and Central American Games in the 1930s. And it's really funny because when the Pan American Games begin, a lot of the countries have uh, like sort of scramble to find women to send. Mm. So they're they're kind of like in Guatemala, they're like, do we have any women divers? <laughs> and they sort of just put these open calls in the newspaper, and they have th- this sort of trial where where women then will compete. And it's what ends up happening is that those delegations do not end up sending women to the Olympics. They send very, very few women to the Olympics. But the Pan American Games, though it's not seen as very important for men's sport, becomes very important for women's sport. And so that that Cold War context plays a big part Mm -hmm. um, of that. They don't participate, though, very much, as I said, in the the Olympics. And, And so... That Cold War theater is very much played out by male representatives. Thinking about yeah, the football again in these in these national contexts, the kind of relationship you see between the development of of women in sport and social movements, racial issues, indigenous peoples. Does does women's sport sort of map onto the kind of liberal? modern kind of nation or, or or are there kind of spaces where it sort of interacts with and, and and intersects with perhaps social racial divisions within within latin american countries well in in the case of i'll just take the case of brazil because mm. that's a, a big question um and very different in different national contexts but in the case of brazil the fact that um football had diffused in the 1930s to the extent that they created a, a very big league uh, in 1940 
right before the ban is put into place, it the the ban is absolutely wrapped up in the fact that it had diffused to working class and uh, women of color. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt that policing it had to do with that as well. In fact, there's one point during the ban, because women continue to play, they totally ignore the ban as much as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. At one point, they get a, an invitation from Argentina and Uruguay differently, and they invite the women to come and play. And it ends up in court where the women are petitioning to go. And the response of the Brazilian judge is that the only reason they're getting this invitation is because Argentines want to make fun of black Brazilian women. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a lot about race that is always at play in who can represent Brazil. Mm-hmm. The, the thing... <laughs> The thing about feminist movements, though, is that they have almost or seemingly no interest in women's sport, which has always been a really interesting development because obviously the body, bodily integrity is at the center of feminist politics. It's not really until the democratization movements in Brazil and the push to rescind the ban band begin that you see an intersection there. Um, And then there are feminists that take up the ban as being part of their agenda. There's a few feminist magazines that begin to cover women's sport in the late 1970s and early 1980s. In terms of like a full-fledged relationship between feminist practice and football or women's sport, it's really in 2016 with the Me Too movement that you see uh, sport playing a really important role and feminists looking at it as changing their agenda. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like there has been a, a shift in the conversation. In, in the time that I've been, you know, um, covering and reporting from Latin America, it feels like suddenly those two worlds have kind of really connected, um, especially in, 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 in Chile, where reported from previously um i kind of i kind of wonder sort of it, it, it feels like fo- football areas is very much you know um the culmination of 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 a large of many many years of work and research and builds on your previous uh, monograph and, and articles um and i, I kind of wonder where where you're sort of i know it's i know it's probably the worst question to ask someone when they've just brought out a, a work like this but where kind of where's what, what are the future directions you know for research in this in this field you know uh you know if are there areas you want to kind of to, to look at in, in greater detail or or do you sort of want to kind of you know depart from this i guess yeah both speaking for yourself and and for the sort of the, the kind of field in which you're working more generally well, where are the where are the kind of future directions well, um, doing the history of sport and football, I always use that quote about the mafia. You know, it, it always pulls you back in. <laughs> um, it's always happening. And, and so it's one of those things, especially now. You know, sport has been so central over the last century in establishing gender. And now we're seeing it with the, you know, with the reaction to Castro Semenya and mm. the way in which it's a lightning rod for, for questions of, of gender, of gender fluidity, um, non-binary and trans issues. I, th- I think that is, is so central. You know, the first sex verification testing was in the 1930s. Um, so there's a, a huge history to be done there. There's so much to do in the history of sport around homophobia that hasn't been done. There's so much about 
um, regional histories and, and understanding the ways in which clubs play a central role in kind of local politics. And so I continue to be interested in the same things, if you can believe it. Um, I'm actually writing, <laughs> writing a new book for University wow. of North Carolina um, that's under contract. And there's a, a lot of those issues I'm interested in, but also very interested in kind of the neoliberal state and women's exercise and self-preservation. So something mm. like the women's gyms I'm researching right now, kind of women's gyms in Chile and Argentina and the way in which the neoliberal state puts the responsibility of self-care on the individual, mm. uh, the ways in which sport gets commodified. So that's kind of the direction that I'm looking at. The field in general is just full of possibilities. And there's a lot of younger scholars that are working on things. And I expect all those issues that I'm talking about will continue to be developed. Well, 100%. Um, I think there's lots of um, directions there to be to be taken, and and just sort of um, just finally, I you know I understand you were you were in France uh, last week. Uh, as I said, you know, we're, at the time of recording, we're <coughs> we're just coming up to the uh, to the quarter finals. Um, what, what have been what were your kind of impressions and and highlights uh, of, of the sort of games and the you know experiences you've, you've you've seen this year, and 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 who who is your who's your money on to to win this year? <laughs> I mean, I, historians are terrible at predictions. Um, <laughs> I'm the worst. Um, you know, I was in France. I, I was very excited. I, I covered some some of the Brazil team as well for SB Nation mm-hmm. uh, recently. So I've, I've been paying really close attention and following along. I, I worked with the Chileans and Argentines and Brazilians with another organization that I work for called FAIR. Mm-hmm. Uh, on unionizing them. Yeah. And I think this World Cup is fascinating. It's a political sort of crossroads where so many of the players are tuned into the labor politics and feminist politics of, of their lives and their sport, and they're very public about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's really been a, a fascinating development to watch. Um, at the same time, you know, no teams from the Global South are going to the quarterfinals. Yeah. And this is the second World Cup in a row. And it's it's very clear that, you know, that that this is about resources. This is about the way that federations take care of their women's teams or don't. Mm-hmm. And Brazil has squandered a generation of talent the likes of which we may or may not see again with Marta, Cristiani, mm. uh, Formiga. And it's been one disappointment after another. And when you watch that, and the same with Argentina and Chile, I get so nervous because I just feel like federations are looking for any excuse to justify cutting funding mm-hmm. for the programs. And, and you may say, like, well, who cares about football, right? It's like, well, it's Latin America, and yeah, people really care. It's really important for girls yeah. and young women to be treated in a way that, you know, that they can represent the nation, that they do have a right to the same resources as their male counterparts. Um, we know that participation in sport is, is very good for young women and girls on a number of levels, whether mm-hmm. it's you know, just their overall health, social solidarity, self-esteem, you know, all of those ways. So so the national team really does link up with grassroots in that sense. 
Um, And so it's sad, you know, to see that there's no teams from the global south that will go forward. Of course, race has been essential. Look at the fouls. Mm. Um, Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated put up this really um, good but depressing, you know, grid and list and you know except for one player like it's it's predominantly women of color that that are that are that are getting you know pinged with those yellows Mm -hmm. and so there's a way in which women of color are policed in these tournaments in a way that white women aren't Mm -hmm. and that's been you know that's been frustrating uh in in another sense um you're even looking at the U.S. coming pr- pretty dominant. I mean, they got they got a good challenge from Spain, but looking pretty good, pretty dominant, and they are in a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. You know, so so everyone asks, well, why is the U.S. so much better? And it's like, well, they bring in more money than than the men's team, and they're still getting paid less, yeah. and they're in a lawsuit. Yeah. So you know, it's 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 pretty like. It's, it's a pretty interesting crossroads. It's a very political moment, I think, for for women's football. And I'll be interested. I mean, if I had to put money, you know, probably the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's hard to say. Fran- France looks like, you know, France is, didn't look great against Brazil. Yeah. But, but um, usually the tournaments won, just as in the case of the men, by teams that get better as they go on yeah um so that's interesting just one note to make is that both the gold cup and the copa america the south american you know tournaments are being held for the men's side at the very same time which has really hurt some of the interest um you know the journalists that are there covering it are definitely less than there would be if, it, if there wasn't the Copa America going on at the very same time. And I think and it was intentional. It was yeah. absolutely intentional. They knew five years ago when this tournament would happen. It's, um, it's, it's a shame. And, you know, and I think, as you say, there's been some really, some real kind of jaw-dropping moments, really exciting moments um, uh, over in France. And, you know, not least that, you know, really heartfelt, inspiring, very political message from from Marta, from the you know from 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 Brazil, after that game against France, we said you know to all the girls back home, you know you can do this. You know the, the women's game needs you. You know step up and 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 get involved. And I thought that's kind of very very inspiring. But maybe you know without the resources and the and the and the political will, you know from elsewhere, you know it it, it will be an up, uphill battle. Well, you're exactly right. The message from Marta is no doubt moving. Yeah. Like, you know, who doesn't love Marta and who yeah. doesn't love <laughs> watching her speak to girls? At yeah. the same time, the Thaisa, who had scored the goal in the game, uh, took a different track, which was to say, we need a good structure. We need mm. governance that understands and respects women's sport. And I, there's a part of me that wishes that that had a bit more play. Yeah. Um, just because Marta's message is lovely, but it puts it on those girls. Of course. And it's like not a lack of will or effort or trying that this has been a disappointment for Brazil in terms of the tournament. It's, it's absolutely a lack of good structure. Absolutely. Well, I think that that's that's a really um, uh, nuanced kind of note to to end on there. Um, Dr. Brenda Elsie, thanks so much for joining us and and best of luck with your future research. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
Joining us from New York is Olympian Melissa Ortiz, who was born in Florida to Colombian parents and had a successful college career in the US before going on to win 28 caps for Colombia after making her debut in 2009. However, she stepped away from international football in 2018, the reasons for which we'll be discussing today. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Melissa. Thank you, John. So Colombia are the second-ranked South American team in the FIFA rankings at the moment, but they didn't qualify for this World Cup, and there have been a number of uh, a number of difficulties, uh, well publicised by yourself and other and other Colombian players. Um, could you kind of summarise the obstacles that have been put in your way in international football since you made your debut? Yeah, I think um, you know there's been a, a few obstacles, and some were, were easy obstacles, and some were more challenging obstacles, um, being that. You know, one of the, the obstacles that just women footballers face on a day-to-day basis is just the machismo culture. Um, that is getting better, thankfully, I think, with the aid of, of social media. And, of course, you know, um, now as of recent, the Women's World Cup, absolutely bossing it um, in terms of, like, audience mm-hmm. uh, ratings, etc. But one of the main ob- obstacles that we faced, especially in South America and in, in Colombia, was the, the, the support that we were given by, or lack thereof, support uh, from the mm. Federation. Yeah. Um, you know, we were, we always played for the passion, we always played for the honor of representing the jersey and everything it meant for us. And that's why we did so well for so long. And that's why we did, you know, went to U17 World Cup, U20 World Cup, mm. uh, two Olympics, two World Cups. And it came to a point where we, you know, also wanted value in ourselves and to be valued by those that are ruling women's football in Colombia, and that is by the Federation. So our main obstacle then and to this day still is, um, I'd say, you know, the Federation and the Confederation. I don't think personally that CONMEBOL does a good job in really developing and investing in women's football. So mm-hmm. as far as obstacles go, that's the continuous one since I've been, uh, <laughs> since I was in the team since 2009. Um, and apart from that, just obviously the money factor, um, you're not able to really uh, live, uh, you know, a, a lifestyle that you might want or, or deserve based yeah. off what the, the pay that they give you. So that's a continuing lifestyle that we're, we're hopefully, um, you know, with our efforts trying to change. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen you kind of highlight various things in the past about, you know, having uh, to pay for your own kit and things like that and kind of pay for your travel expenses. And I understand you were paid sort of $20 a day. Is that right in expenses for, for training? Correct, yes. Yeah. So we were paid uh, $20 a day. Um, there was a point where we weren't paid. Then they mm-hmm. started paying us. Um, then they, after, um, our former president of the FA, Luis Bilia was involved in the whole FIFA scandal. And then mm-hmm. up came, uh, our new FA president, um, Pesudum. He, when he got into to office, whatever, as president, he didn't give any reasoning and they absolutely took our pay right before, like six months before the 2016 Rio Olympics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was no way in, in kind of arguing that at the time because um, one of our, our teammates, Daniela Montoya, when she spoke out against the Federation, she was, um, well, X'd out from the Olympic team. And, you know, they ne- mm-hmm. they'll never admit it that that was why. They'll always say that that was a coaching uh, decision, but it has it makes zero sense because Daniela was a veteran, a starter, and mm-hmm. it would be kind of like 
I don't know, like on the, if the Colombia men's team were not with Cuadrao or with James. It's just he, mm-hmm. she was a, a, a typical veteran on our team. So hopefully um, that will change. And, and we also went through, you know, like you said, horrible uh, used uniforms. Uh, socks were used and probably recycled through other youth teams and then given to us. Yeah. Um, you know, things progressively got better when they built the – the, the FA has its own like training facility in Bogota and they have mm-hmm. another one in Barranquilla, but we always change, chain train in Bogota. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it got better with the standards, like, you know, where we were staying, you know, the field that we were playing on there was, was good, but at the same time, they still wouldn't give us equal uh, treatment that they did when the men's team arrived. Yeah. Listening to some of the things you're saying there, it's just, you know, you know, you can't comprehend the kind of, you know, a men's, you know, a men's uh, international team having the same treatment. So it doesn't right. seem doesn't seem at all equal. Uh, but it seems kind of unintelligible in, you know, kind of in more generally that a country with Colombia's footballing tradition can kind of be so far even behind the kind of modest standards set by other kind of Latin American uh, women's team. I mean, you've identified kind of governance really as the main problem. But how was this justified to you by the Colombian FA? Was there any contact or was it just kind of speak out and then lose your place in the team? Um, there was no justification, and there was on 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 behalf of us as as players. I mean, you know, we tried to reach out via um, uh, formal letters. You know, we mm-hmm. have several letters that we sent out to uh, the president. We had given it to our our delegates that had been traveling with us to various tournaments, um, and that's something that the FA tried to justify in saying that. They had never received any formal document or any type of uh, complaint formally um, mm-hmm. by us. So that when it came to the point when, when we'll, we will later discuss when we spoke out, that's what they were saying. But we never received an answer from them from our letters. And we have copies of the letters and dates and mm-hmm. um, stamp of receipt from, from the FA, like from the building when they were delivered. And yeah. that's that's why it became such a big deal in Colombia because they had lied um, in response to what we did and it was all you know in in defense for themselves but not knowing that we had so much backup behind us yeah and so you eventually took the decision to kind of take the matter into your own hands or several of you did and you yourself stepped away from the national team I mean how difficult was it to do that because like you say you send these kind of formal letters get no response or they're lying to you you know, kind of how hard was it to, to step away? Was it a last resort? And, you know, is there any chance that you kind of go back to the team if things changed? Or are we too far away from that still? Um, to answer that last question, and I think I still have that, that, that door open for me in my mind. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I'm still I'm 29 years old. You know, I'm, I'm still pretty healthy in shape. So mm-hmm. if it's a possibility, if it's worthwhile, then I would do it. And if it's worthwhile in terms of, you know, the tournament to be played and, and the respect that is given, then I'll definitely, I would think about that for sure. Um, But uh, to answer the the first question, Mm -hmm. um, like it was, it was a, it was a definitely a hard decision to make to step away from the game. Um, But I think with time and it still is hard to, to to this day, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of myself still playing. You know, I just Mm -hmm. watched the whole women's world cup and I was just in France in these stadiums and I just, and it's hard not to see myself still, you know, not competing. Yeah. Um, but I think that we had to stand up for ourselves and, and, and prove a point. And, and last year, right before I did step away, 
um, right before the Copa America, which is the World Cup qualifiers, you mm-hmm. know, that it, it, it's not sure if it was the FA that was sending this communication to our coach or if it was our coach not wanting to ask the FA to pay for the flights for us players that live in the USA. Mm-hmm. So when that con, when that point of communication came between me and the coach on whether I was going to play or go, you know, do the whole, the camps leading into the Copa America, mm-hmm. Um, it was always indirectly put it like, we'll only pay for uh, your flight here, but you have to stay the six months or uh, we won't pay for your flights back and forth. So mm-hmm. it was just too complicating me thinking, OK, you know, camps are every, you know, they last two weeks and then there's two to three weeks off. So what am I going to do for those two to three weeks off? Yeah, I could train. I could act like a footballer. But really, as a woman, we, we are we are part-time footballers and part-time workers. So it came to the point of, well, is this really worth it for what, where I'm at right now in this stage of my life and, um, and for a Copa America. So that's, that's, you know, one of the reasons why I initially had to put that in my mind. Like I can't be doing this right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to pay my rent, I have to pay my bills. And two, um, it, was just down in, in, in my in my veins to finally speak out and, and make it known of the way that they were treating us because there was no, you know, great coverage of us in Colombia until we did speak out. Yeah, yeah, no certainly. And did you receive a lot of support when you when you finally did step away? When I, when I stepped away I stepped away super quietly. Like I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't say anything. I just acted as if you know, I was working, you know, or I had other, you know, commitments. Um, I didn't know at the time what strategically I was going to do within the next year, uh, whether I was going to do like football wise, career wise, outside of the pitch, um, what I was going to do in terms of, you know, speaking up for our rights at that time that I, that I stepped away, I had no idea. I just knew that I had to kind of like regroup myself, like just, kind of not be um you know I don't know posting things on social media at the time because I really wasn't sure I was very ambiguous about my future very ambiguous about what we were as a team and what you know how we were being treated everything Mm -hmm. was just so ambiguous of course yeah and just I mean I think I know what the answer to this might be but why why did you think you couldn't speak out beforehand was it the kind of threat of just losing your place and therefore you know kind of you said you didn't think anything would actually happen Absolutely. Yeah. So at the time when I when I quietly just stepped away, um, and I didn't say anything. I mean, imagine if we did qualify for the World Cup, mm-hmm. if I would have spoken up, then God forbid, I wouldn't have played in this World Cup if yeah. we were in it. So yeah, that's definitely, you know, a factor in it. And mm-hmm. cowardly, I think, for me, and amongst us players, you know, that that was just our, our mentality, because we were scared. And that's something that has been like ingrained in us by the FA. Uh, indirectly for so many years so I think that just also comes with experience and and also you know being inspired by other women that we see you know standing up for their rights so yeah at the time it was definitely out of fear that we didn't that I didn't say anything or we didn't do anything Mm -hmm. and how do you how do you feel kind of retrospectively everyone's kind of looking back on the you know in the last couple of years I mean if we kind of take your retirement as you say your kind of quiet retirement from international football is a sort of starting point between there and and this world cup 
Colombia, I mean, they were still a very good side. They didn't qualify for this World Cup, and you know that's kind of, you know, that's a, a separate issue. But it was still a very good team, you know. And people are looking back now and saying, kind of, why were Colombia not there? They were doing so well. Are people kind of starting to wake up to the fact that you know maybe there should have been more support for for women's football all along? Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's that was the hard part for me because you know in France I got to watch. Uh, Chile play I got to watch Argentina play live in the stadiums and that was that was like a heartbreaker for me at the same I mean it was mm-hmm. beautiful to, to see them shine and have their moment mm-hmm. but for me it was also bittersweet because you know that could have been us and it should have been us um, and I'm not saying that that they did not deserve it mm-hmm. not you know one bit because they, they qualified through what was fair you know through Copa America yeah but um, you know, as a team, we're so like in Colombia, we're so talented. We're so talented as players, and there's still like youth talent that that are coming up through the ranks. And mm-hmm. it's just that if we would have had the support um, and the incentives at the time to really, you know, qualify for our third women's World Cup in a row, then you know you would have had seen like an uh, an incredible Colombia in this women's World Cup. So it's. It's sad that it that it didn't actually happen, but I think it's a good learning step so that Colombian FA does see the importance of having their women's team in the Women's World Cup, just like Chile saw the importance and just like, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully Argentina did. You know, they have made some impactful statements through their performance in the Women's World Cup. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, you know, their their performance was was great uh, on the short run mm-hmm. especially the groups but i think even with those three games um they were very much impactful for their countries you know they opened up also like a can of worms and mm-hmm. also a can of, of of viewers and a new audience for the country to support women's football yeah yeah i think the chilean case is particularly particularly interesting so i mean they've had the very similar issues to those that you've described with um with the Colombian national team as well in terms of lack of support but you know they've really kind of you know come into this whole new era of uh, of support and people are really taking like you know taking notice of um of what they've done but it's also worth mentioning as well that Colombia didn't even have a, a, a even a semi professional uh, national league uh until i mean very recently that you've you know you've had a kind of proper national league is football becoming kind of a viable career now for women in Colombia? Because before it seemed to be kind of you were growing up playing football and it was just a kind of, you know, the pride of representing your country, but it wasn't really a career. Right. I mean, before, um, you know, probably over the span of six years of my Colombian career, most of the, most of us were studying in the USA. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like I think over half of our team were playing in D1 and D2 programs in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once, you know, we started talking about a pro league, especially with um, some of the Colombian uh, Federation executives, that's when one of them really, you know, put their foot down and was like, yeah, this is what we really need. And when they formed it, it's something that, you know, we had really fought for, we had really wanted. Um, and then when it was created and it only lasted you know i i want to say like a year in total because mm-hmm. it's 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 a very short season so there are two seasons that are very short yeah um so it's two years and i just don't think that the they had the correct marketing efforts whatsoever i mean the final did have a sold out stadium in el campin which was tremendous mm-hmm. but apart from that you know i don't think that the mayor which is the league um, I don't think they did a great job in really marketing the women's game. Mm-hmm. 
and do I think that it's a viable uh, career um, for women right now? No, because that league was almost uh, pretty much demolished Mm -hmm. until we stepped up and fought for it. And then we had um, like the the Olympic Committee help us out in in, in trying to form the league again and and Mm -hmm. to get together with Di Mayor. Um, and so now there is going to be the league and it's starting just next week. And the thing is like, it's only two, it's only going to be two months long because they had to rush things, plan things, get, um, get sponsors on board and have it all done before Copa Libertadores because they yeah. have to have winners for it. So no, these, these pro uh, professional women's soccer players in Colombia right now only are on two or three month long contracts. Okay. And with that being said, the the, the pay is, is, is pretty low. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a few, probably like a handful um, from our national team that do make this as their full-time career. And that is absolutely awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our captain plays for Valencia. Uh, we're going to have a few other girls from our national team going to be joining, you know, La Liga or mm-hmm. perhaps in other countries. So that's going to be exciting. Um, but apart from, you know, maybe a handful or, or if that 10 who can really do this full time and actually make a decent living off of it. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it'd be brilliant if we can see that kind of, you know, increase. And I think the next four year period, the cycle, it's the next world cup is going to be crucial in that. Um, I mean, your, your career is, I mean, the way you kind of went through, you obviously grew up in the U S and went to college there and things. I mean, is the you obviously had a very different experience and maybe not atypical because I think like you say quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of the women end up studying there and going through that um, that pathway. But mm-hmm. is the is the training and the the kind of quality of coaching and the the hours that people can kind of commit to it is that the same in Colombia or do you think you've kind of had a real advantage by not you know kind of growing up through that system? I think it depends. Um, if I compare like our youth hoods, you know, obviously. Um, USA and, and US soccer is like milestones ahead of mm-hmm. a women's football development. So I was obviously and, and gratefully, fortunately, given a really well um, footballing development. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was always like on a club team. Um, you know, I was an ODP. And then, of course, you know, through college soccer, I was, you know, taught how to formally, like, how to actually lift, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, with proper form. And those are some things that. You know, in Colombia, they didn't have a youth system. Like, they had it developed where you would play for your, your inner city and then your, your state, like, department, so kind of similar to ODP. Mm-hmm. But, but it wasn't taken or it wasn't, um, how do you say, like, structured at, like, the rate or as well as, obviously, U.S. soccer did it. I think one of the advantages that I had going into uh, Colombia camp was being you know very fit that's definitely one thing mm-hmm. to um being athletic just like well-rounded just like you see like all typical like american players are very athletic fast mm-hmm. strong um agile and those are some things that i see lack of in colombia but on the other hand where we um where in the u.s you know, the downfall is the technical side of things. You know, you don't have kids playing like street soccer that much, you know, mm-hmm. and it's becoming more and more expensive, even back then for my parents to play, to pay for my club fees mm-hmm. to this day is so expensive. Whereas in Colombia, you know, you have these, you have girls playing street soccer, you have them playing futsala, 
Um, and that's where the technique and like all these brilliant technical skills come into play. So that's where mm-hmm. they have their uh, advantage, you know, over the ones like myself who, who came to Colombia later um, in our in our in our U fives. So finally, just kind of to tie this all together, how far do you think we are away? I mean, we've alluded to different things so far, kind of the machismo, and that's something that you say is kind of maybe not as much of an issue as it was. But how far away are we from overall equality of of rights, of incentives, of respect? I mean, the US fans chanting at the final uh, on Sunday um, for equal pay, things like that. I mean, how far is that away? I think... um... I think it depends geographically on, on the location. If mm-hmm. we're talking about FIFA in general, I think the U.S. Women's National Team has made a, quite a statement, especially, say, at the stadium, at the final, you know, fans chanting equal pay, and they're also, you know, boo, uh, booing Infantino. Mm-hmm. I think that in terms of uh, a FIFA uh, in these tournaments, I think we're very, we're, we're getting there. I think within, I'm hoping next Women's World Cup, they'll see more, equal pay from FIFA. If you mm-hmm. see already, you know, Adidas stepping up and offering that, I don't see why FIFA would not. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, you know, how FIFA, you know, controls confederations and the confederations control the federations, you know, this is one thing that I think that FIFA should do a better job in um, because there, we don't see, like, any audits of, of the money going into the federations and, and seeing how the federations utilize the funds to mm-hmm. in women's development. You know, we don't see any of that. We don't see if, you know, how much of this is allocated is actually going into paying us or paying my female, like, uh, football teammates on the national team. Yeah. Um, as far as my the federation goes, do I think we are... Uh, close? No, I do not think we're anywhere close. Um, I think in terms of South America and Comebol, I think we're still very far. Um, in terms of that, I say it's going to take another eight plus years mm-hmm. to actually see something mm, maybe equal. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and 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 I think that it's been a fast development of, of the eyes on women's football over the past two years. Mm-hmm. because of the importance of social media you know social media has been able to create this whole vision of what really women's football is you know before people would think ah, it's boring mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it's it, they're girls that don't know how to play they're slow they're you know all the things in the book that i've heard but you know social media has really been able to highlight the true realities of it and that is you know that it's football is football you know whether it's men's or 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 women's it's still the same rules Mm -hmm. and it's still the same game and and it's beautiful whether it's men or women yeah it's a great note to finish on let's hope this can be a launch pad for uh for the next four years and see where we get to by next world cup so thank you so much for speaking to us it's uh, very kind of you very welcome thank you guys thank you And that's it for another episode of Miradas. We heard from Brazilian journalist Natalie Jedra with some great anecdotes from out in France at the Women's World Cup. Uh, historian Brenda Elsie gave us a sharp analysis of the social and cultural context surrounding women's sports in Latin America. And finally, Olympian Melissa Ortiz gave an insight into the conditions female footballers face in Colombia and the sacrifices players have to make. 
Please do rate and subscribe to Minadas on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud or share us with your networks as well. That really helps us get the word out there. And you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at MiradasPod and check out our website as well. And you can join our mailing list there at www.miradaspodcast.com to keep up with the latest news. You can also email us with requests, comments, lavish praise, vitriolic abuse at info at miradaspodcast.com. And our music is by Chilean band La Motivante. Our logo is designed by cartoonist Diego Completo. And you can find more information and links to their work on our website. So, congratulations to the US on winning a record fourth Women's World Cup. Next time we have a Pan-American episode where we're talking about Colombia's fragile peace, liberalism and populism in Latin America, and strange and wonderful Amazonian tubers with some really great guests. Until then, it's goodbye from myself and Laurie. Goodbye. Goodbye.